Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. At participating Wendy's for a limited time, meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii. everybody and thank you for joining me again this morning on Next on the T. I'm your host Chris Mascaro and today I have the wonderful privilege of talking with Matt Adams. You know Matt from his show The Fairways of Life that airs every weekday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM's PGA channel. You also know him from his uh, wonderful book Fairways of Life, Golf Wisdom of the Legends, plus his numerous other books including several in the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. I'm very excited to have Matt back with me this morning, and we're going to get to him in just a moment. But before we do, we want to get started like we do every week on this show by saluting the brave men and women serving in our military. Thank you. Thank you for your daily sacrifices and all you do to keep the rest of us safe. We also want to thank those of you who have served or are currently serving in every branch of the military and public service. We truly appreciate what you do to preserve our freedoms and our liberties through your strength and efforts that our way of life is even possible. Our sincere thanks as well to Sean Cruz and all the wonderful folks at the Armed Forces Radio Network. It's an honor for us to be a part of your network. You can find our show by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org. We also want to thank everyone listening in on iHeartRadio, as well as great radio sites across the Internet like Spreaker.com, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player.fm, and Blog Talk Radio. We also want to give a special shout-out to our good friends, Mike Kovacs, Ben Kerr, Mark Mendeski, and the rest of the great staff over at LastWordOnSports.com. Check those guys out online and on Twitter. Their site's absolutely fantastic, con- contains great content across every sport, and their staff of writers are absolutely wonderful. You're going to love going to their site every single day for your sports news. If you haven't been there yet, check it out online and then bookmark it. Again, LastWordOnSports.com. Plus, if someone's dragging you to the mall or to the grocery store or you're you're just tired of the same old, same old on your commute, download the Player.fm or Stitcher app on your smartphone and take us with you. Let us give you something to focus on while you're out and about doing your errands. Uh, Our show is brought to you by the great folks over at Kyven Foods. Former Bengals and Falcons tight end Reggie Kelly has created a wonderful array of products. His salsas, sauces, and spices are all natural, and they're going to liven up every meal or recipe you have. So wow your friends at your next home party or your next tailgate party by adding Kyven products to everything you're going to put on your menu. Check them out online. You can find them at kyven82.com. That's kyven, K-Y-V-A-N, the number 82.com. All right, now joining me on the Kyven Foods guest line is Matt Adams, like I mentioned a moment ago. I'm sure you all know Matt from the Fairways of Life show on the PGA Tour channel on Sirius XM. 
Matt has also been featured on the BBC, ESPN, the Golf Channel, PGA Tour Entertainment, European Tour, European Tour Productions, and now on the Back Nine Network. He's also the author of 10 books, including several in the Chicken of the Soup for the Soul series and his Fair Ways of Life book, which I've got sitting here right next to me, by the way, is absolutely outstanding. He's virtually uh, interviewed every living legend from the golf scene. He's also one of the best interviewers, not only in golf, but in all of sports, and I'm an avid listener to his show every single morning, and I'm honored to have him next on the tee with me this morning. Good morning, Matt. Thanks for being here this morning. Uh, Thank you, Chris. Good to be with you again. Matt, so much has been made in the media about our inability to win the Ryder Cup over the last 20 or so years. Your show was flooded with calls for several days about it following this year's matches. I know Tom Watson was a periodic guest on your show, kind of along the journey up to the Ryder Cup. Has it been difficult for you to hear sort of all the post-event criticism he's received? No, uh, it hasn't been difficult, I would say. I mean, I would say half of it is with merit and half of it is completely an overreaction. Uh, Tom Watson did what Tom Watson was brought in to do. He he led with uh, an iron fist. It just so happened that that game plan didn't work with the team that he had. Uh, he also was fated to be up against a very, very strong European side. So I think it's a natural compulsion that people want someone to blame but when you have right. a loss. But the reality is is that while he had a part to play in the loss, he wasn't the reason for the loss. He was one of the reasons that the American team did not win. But I do believe that from a from a philosophy standpoint that he came in with, from a coach's standpoint that he came in with, it just didn't connect with the team. So that would be where I would define uh, the criticism that I think uh, against Tom Watson there was some merit. You know, Matt, I had Pete Kessler, uh, Peter Kessler on the show a couple of weeks ago, and Peter suggested they were sort of one dinner short of having the team maybe a little better organized or informed. You know, they had one dinner early in the week where Captain Watson solicited the players, you know, to submit in writing who they wanted to play with. Peter suggested that what they didn't do was have the second dinner where Captain Watson, you know, putting everything up maybe on a flip chart where they could discuss the results and, you know, who wanted to play with who, perhaps discuss, you know, who he thought, you know, good pairings would be, discuss contingency plans if this happened or if, or if that happened, and then sort of go from there. What are your thoughts? Is that something that might have, you know, made it a little better for the players and maybe more successful this go-around? It, it may have, but what I was just alluding to in terms of a coaching philosophy would fly in the face of what you were just suggesting because when Tom Watson was brought in, it was clear from the very beginning from conversations that I had with people on the inside, both privately and publicly, where they said to me, he's not going to be the type captain where he's going to solicit from his players who they do or do not want to play with. He's going to go out there much more in a Vince Lombardi approach and say, go out there and beat him, team. I'll take care of the details. I'll tell you who you're playing with. I'll tell you when you're playing. I'll tell you when you're going to sit, and you're going to go out there, and you're going to perform, and you're going to run through that wall for me because I'm Tom Watson. And that was the mentality and the approach that he brought to four. And as mentioned, it didn't work. So while the suggestion of one more dinner or a flip chart or, you know, more touchy feely coaching style, who would you like to play with or who wouldn't you like to play with would probably have uh, been effective. That was not the type captaincy or approach that Tom Watson was bringing to this Ryder Cup. Yeah, uh, absolutely right. Old school. I'm with you. Um, Matt, you had Bernhard Langer on your show on Thursday. He was so dominant 
on the Champions Tour this year. Won five times, finished in the top three, an amazing 12 times in 20 events that he played. He's in such great physical shape at age 57. You know, speaking of Tom Watson, could could Longer pull a Tom Watson and contend perhaps in a major still at age 57-plus? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there's no doubt about it. It ha- would have to be on, you know, the right facility because today's players on the regular tour are just so long that the courses reflect that. But he has the game, he has the nerve, and that's the thing that's interesting, especially given his history and the fact that a couple of times, uh, of course, across the course of it, he's had to fight yips. But now with the longer putter, he's got that settled down. But his ball striking is so solid. And if you heard it, Bernhard, on the, the show the other day, he was talking about how his swing has evolved over the years from the original kind of reverse C to now the way he finishes with his right shoulder facing at the target he's still hitting the ball so solidly and hitting it to the spots that he wants to hit it to. So when you look at it from that perspective, there are courses that he could contend on. There are places that he could win. So, yeah, he could he could do a, a Tom Watson at this point. And what's interesting about it is that if you look at the dominance that he's displaying right now at age 57, Tom Watson was not displaying the same degree of dominance at the age of 57 that Langer is right now. So if you had to compare apples to apples – it would be fair to say that Bernard's probably in a position where he's even more likely to do what Tom Watson did, believe it or not. That's that's just how well he's playing, and that's not taking anything away from what Tom Watson nearly accomplished in 2009 at Turnberry. Right. Matt, one of, one of the things that people may not know about you, unless they've done some research, is that, that you've actually been a golf club designer for couple, companies like Nicholas Golf and McGregor, to name just a couple. You know, I've I've always been a huge fan of Mr. Nicholas's. I still play a Nicholas driver three and five wood. Are you surprised mm-hmm. that his equipment brand didn't do better in the U.S.? Uh, no, I'm not really, to tell you the truth. The, when I worked on the equipment side of the business, it started to change when Callaway came out with the Big Bertha. And the kind of the watershed moment of, the golf equipment industry is when a piece of equipment suddenly costs you as much or more than a refrigerator. And I always <laughs> think that when, when a piece of equipment requires your spouse's approval before you can buy it, because the piece of equipment goes from being a recreational sporting good item to becoming a durable good in terms of from an economic perspective and it's because of the money that it costs and the investment. Right. That was a fundamental shift. And the only way that those companies, because you got to remember, Chris, a golf club is only three pieces. And the, the marketing people want you to believe that a golf club, you know, somehow can be orbiting the moon. But it only has three pieces, a head, a shaft, and a grip. And if you look at the grip and you look at the shaft, commonly that that shaft and that grip can be found on multiple clubs across the spectrum. So what are we talking about then? Now you're down to one piece that is unique, and it's the head. So in order to command the money that, that they were charging back in those days and still today when it comes out new for golf clubs, they had to pour a tremendous amount of money into the marketing of it. They had to justify to people that this product was used to it. So while Jack Nicklaus's name still carries and is revered as probably the most respected in the game of golf, unless you had the millions and millions and millions of dollars behind the introduction of every product to support and promote 
and and get tour brand awareness and exposure and player endorsements and all that goes with it, almost any name would be doomed to uh, the background because you had these massive and public corporations that were out there promoting their products. So it was it was a natural economic cycle, and I don't even think it had really anything to do with Mr. Nicholas's name per se. Hmm. So to to your point, Matt. When you look at every year, right, new models, you know, Callaway comes out with a new model every year, TaylorMade, et cetera, et cetera. Everyone's got a new model of driver and, and irons that come out every year. And we're always, you know, pushing the edge of, you know, what is legal within, you know, the USGA rules. Is it, is it, is it all marketing? You know, is this year's model not going to be good enough for next year because it's, you know, where, where else can equipment go? that you know we haven't yeah. already come to the edge of what we are what we're allowed to do theoretically. Well, I mean it's not all marketing, but it's probably 80% marketing. There there is real technology there. The bigger problem that the equipment companies have and then thus the retailers have is that the product cycles are too fast. And the reason they're doing that is they have to make these quarterly performance reports so they jam new product into the marketplace. To those companies they do believe that every time a new product comes out, it's better than the last. But in fairness, if we picked up 20 yards with every new driver that's come out, we'd all be hitting it 800 yards right now. Right. But having said that, they truly do believe that it's better than the last. However, in terms of the question that you asked, Chris, about the technology and where are we at, are we up against the walls of physics? We are in terms of a clubhead's performance relative to the ball's reaction against the face in terms of what kind of distance you can get. So what they're dealing with now with technology, which continues to be tuned, is what happens when the ball is hit on an off-center strike, which is the majority of strikes for amateur golfers, either high in the toe or low in the heel or any combination therein. So the better they balance that and the better that they work on that and the better they get reflected materials for the same, then the better performance that they can enact and so that is real. I'm not, I'm not denying that, that there is uh, viability and all that. And, frankly, I'm amazed every year at the PGA show that the engineers can come out with what they do. It is, it's absolutely fascinating to me, but it's still only a matter of tiny degrees when you get right down to it. Mm-hmm. Matt, there, there's a quote uh, from you in your book, Fairways of Life, uh, that I think is absolutely true, and I'd like you to explain your thoughts on you wrote In our quest to master a game that cannot be mastered, golf is foremost about self-discovery. A person revealed to the world in a round of golf. Even more so, we are revealed to ourselves. Our character, integrity, morality are all put to the test, and our ability to handle pressure is put to the fire. Sometimes we succeed, sometimes we fail, and if we are observant each time, we learn something new, something that keeps us coming back. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that one of the things, to, to in reverse order, one of the things that makes golf so special is I always think it gives you that one shot that keeps you coming back, that one shot that goes from the ball through the club face up the shafts, through your hands, through your arms, and directly into your soul. And it's that connection that goes, yes, it may be one, it may have been a putt, it may have been a chip, it may have been an iron shot, it may have been off the tee, whatever it was, for that right. one practice a second you are every bit as good as the best in the world which is what makes this game so very unique but one of the things that amazes me about the sport is that you have people that they can be captains of industry in whatever the particular field that they're in they can be great great champions but when it comes to that for example the three-foot putt 
they feel as though their insecurity is laid bare and exposed to the world. And it's always very curious to me that golf does that because it's not about bravado. It's not about what we hope people will believe from us and of us. It's just this raw exposure of who we are and how we react. And one of the things that I think that makes it so unique is that almost every round, I can't think of one where you, where you wouldn't have had the opportunity, you can make a choice. Are you going to try to cut a corner? Are you going to try to cheat the situation? Or are you going to play the ball as it lies? Do you know what I'm saying? Where yep. in any round of golf, and many of us have played with people that would try to take advantage of such, and, and even if you've done that, it causes me to say, what was your reason for doing it? What did you hope to gain by shaving a stroke on a hole where the person kind of lost count what you had, and they said, what did you have there? And you said a five or a six, and you knew it was a seven or an eight or what have you, whatever the particular scenario is. What was the reason why you did that? And so I think golf constantly asks of us, the, first of all, the highest ideals of, of integrity and the best of who and what I think humanity can be. But it also asks us the lingering questions if we have failed in that regard. And it even happens in small little ways. You're out playing golf in the afternoon. There's not another soul around. Your ball goes into a fairway bunker. You go down there and you strike the ball. You had to step over the rake to get in there and to get back out again. Did you rake that bunker? Or was it for convenience sake that you didn't because you said, nobody's out here, nobody's going to see me, it really doesn't matter? Well, I do think it matters, and I think it matters to you and to your conscience and, and who you are and how you see yourself as a person. And golf has very high standards, and it asks that of all of us. Yeah, absolutely right. You know, Matt, there's, a, there's another quote in your book you know, uh, from Mr. Nicholas, and he says, Success depends almost entirely on how effectively you learn to manage the game's two ultimate adversaries, the course and yourself, right? Sort of, you know, piggybacking on what you just said. Now, to Mr. Nicholas's point, golf has always been thought about as a, you know, it's a solitary game. It's not a team sport. And at its core, it's, it's a field of men and, men and women, you know, against the course. And the person who manages it the best over that four-day span wins the golf tournament. But nowadays... Players have, you know, such an entourage, Matt. Players have swing coaches, sports psychologists, managers, publicists, people handling their social media accounts, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the greats of the game, the Hogans, the Nelsons, the Nicholas's, Palmer's players, they didn't have extra people always in their ear. Is it too much noise now for people in the game? Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say that. I mean, the, the, the game of golf at its highest levels in the PGA Tour is still a massive entertainment circus. And, you have to remember that these guys are entertainers. That's why we're out there watching them play on the PGA Tour. And the bigger the field of entertainment, the more money that's engaged in it, the more that they're being honed as athletes in terms of how they swing and how they eat, how they work out. I mean, you look at Rory McIlroy, who in the last five years, I was going to say the last decade, but even more accurately, the last five years, has gone from a relatively pudgy kid to being this sculpted, lean, golfing machine. Well, he's doing that because he feels that he has to do that. It's a standard that was set by Tiger Woods in order to be the number one ranked golfer in the world, and certainly his driving distance would seem to suggest as much to him. So I don't begrudge the players for all of that. I respect the fact that the generations before them didn't have that and didn't need that, but those generations didn't play in what is this massive media and entertainment circus that these guys are today. So if that's what it takes for them to be the golfer that they want to be or think they can be, eh, more power to them. 
Mr. Nicholas always said that you know there were only a handful of guys who thought they were capable of winning majors. And on Sunday, he always thought, you know, they're all going to choke, and I'm not. What do you think is the difference, you know, for guys that can actually think that they can win a major and what goes on, you know, between their ears that maybe not so much for other guys? Well, I think it's a matter of nerve, isn't it? And I saw it most recently at the Ryder Cup in Glen Eagles because I was doing the international broadcast from it. So I was right there. It's interesting, Chris, because in Europe, radio access is the exact same as television. So you're shoulder to shoulder with the guys watching all this stuff go down. And what I was seeing in a lot of the American players was that at the time that they had to make a putt, at the time that they had to be able to exercise the highest performance of nerve, they were unable to. Now, that oftentimes is a learned trait. If you look at, for example, the career of Tom Watson, Tom Watson very much had to learn that from the early days when he used to blow a lot of opportunities until the height of his prowess when he would close, obviously, one major after another, having eight compiled. Nick Faldo had a very similar, he was at one point called Nick Foldo because of his propensity to lose right when he had victory within his grasp. And so it's a learning process, I believe. And for whatever reason, the Europeans right now are ahead on that curve. They are making the putts that they need to make at the time they need to make them. It's that nerve. And if you look at it from the standpoint of majors, you had Martin Keimer winning the U.S. Open. You had Rory McIlroy winning the latter two. So Europeans won three of the four major championships in 2014. Now, having said all that, I don't think it's in how they were brought up. I don't think it's in the, the Venus schnitzel or the water they were drinking as, as they were growing up. I think it's cycle. And I think that, A, you're going to get players like Ricky Fowler that's been there enough now that he's going to learn how to close if he hasn't already. And, B, I think you're going to have young players coming through the system. I look at players like a Morgan Hoffman or Harris English or even a rookie like Corey Whitsett right now who has a 10-1-1 record in the NCAAs and Palmer Cup and Walker Cup. And I say, we're going to be fine. Billy Horschel is another one that comes to mind. We're going to be fine. Yeah. Just let this cycle play itself out, and you're going to find that the pendulum will, it's not a question of if, the pendulum will swing the other way. It's inevitable. Matt, I read an article in the Irish Independent where Padraig Harrington talked about how he and his friends would bet on their rounds of golf or who could make the most putts on putting greens. He's quoted as saying, so even the average golfer in the group, after a while, they learned to hole putts to save money or else they couldn't play. They would have to you know, leave the group because they couldn't afford to keep losing. We, we, uh, you know, there are legendary stories, you know, about, you know, what Lee Trevino and Ray Floyd and, you know, guys like that, you know, come to mind where they honed their game, learning how to win and deal with pressure by having sometimes having bet more money than they actually had to lose during yeah. a match. Have you talked to other players about, you know, how they honed their skills or learning to deal with pressure growing up just because of the side bets that they had to make along the way? Yeah, I have. And it, and it leads me to the, Another fact of, of golf today is that, you know, it's natural for all of us to look at the way that the top golfers live, whether we're talking about private jets or fancy cars or, you know, all the things that are the trappings of success at the highest level of golf's largest tour. But there is a reality that for many of these golfers, their pathway has not been paved with gold. In fact, it's been paved with uncertainty and flat-out hard work. And I think that's where many of them are forged. You know, that's where the steel comes from that 
that is forged in the fires of competition and the fact that they may or may not make it, even when you consider the fact that while golf is at the top tier, very lucrative, and it's quite easy to focus on that, the reality also is that you could make six, $700,000, a million dollars in gross earnings in a year, and you lose your card. I mean, that's that's a pretty bitter pill to swallow as well. So I think right. that's where players really become who they are in terms of what did you have to do to get there? How much did you have to scrape and claw? How often were you out there at, at the crack of dawn or, or as darkness was setting in when there was no one else around to see you doing what you're doing? That's where I really believe that champions are made. I do hear the comments from people often that because of the money, it's possible for people to coast and just kind of get by and make a nice living and, and be a journeyman golfer that really never contends. They have a few high finishes in their career, but they end up making a lot of dough. Well, you know what? The reality is those guys exist in every sport where they're there for a few years, they get paid well, and they play a utility role, and that's uh, about the end of it. But I'm talking here about real champions. And what I've seen with real champions, there's a fire in their eyes, there's a fire that burns in their soul, and it's not about money. It's about winning. And those are the guys that, obviously, again, I'm thinking someone like a Rory McIlroy, where you look at a person like that and you go, you know what, they could have a billion dollars in their pocket and they're still going to go out there and want to win every tournament because they're chasing something that you can't put a dollar figure on. They're chasing history. Yeah, no, and to to your point, you know, again, being such a a big fan of Mr. Nicholas, that's something that he always talked about, right? You know, he never played for the money. He played for the trophies and the title, right, figuring that the money would come along. You win enough trophies and titles, the money's going to be there, right? Yeah, I mean, when you look at the career of Jack Nicholas and look at what he accomplished, I I liken Jack Nicholas to Michelangelo or even the Beatles in that I think when you have true genius, true genius, it defies the period in which it exists. It cuts right through the years, the generation, uh, even the centuries. And if you look at Jack Nicklaus's swing now, go back and look at some of the videos of Jack Nicklaus striking the golf ball. It is an absolutely remarkable golf swing that generates massive power, so much so I'm kind of surprised that there are you know, huge schools of, of teaching just devoted to trying to replicate his swing because even now in his 70s when you see him swing, his swing looks it looks powerful for his age, but it looks unique enough that you say, my gosh, why isn't everybody doing that same thing right now? It, it speaks of an age when golf swings, I think it's the case today, but it was even more so back in the golden era, that they were truly fingerprints. And his was one that has left a discernible mark that will – I think, carry on through the ages for many to come. No, no, that's a great point. And speaking speaking of swings, Matt, you know, several years ago, Padraig Harrington was at the top of the sport, you know, during his run of three majors, sort of his run at the potty slam. And shortly thereafter, he changed his swing. You know, I've lost track of the number of variations, you know, of a swing that Tiger is currently on. I had the opportunity to talk to Bobby Clampett a couple of months ago, and he said he he had so many people in his ear giving him swing thoughts, uh, swing thoughts that it ruined his swing. Why do you think guys who are so successful find it necessary to try to completely change things instead of staying with what has been tried and true and worked for them? Because it's the edge. It's what we were talking about earlier, that the pressure is so high and so big 
And these guys are not just an individual going out and playing golf. They are brands and they are individual businesses of their own that at the top tier, the tiers where you're talking about Padraig or Tiger or any of the other top players, nowadays they are massive corporations, global corporations that of that. So if they can pick up a quarter of a stroke, a half a stroke, a stroke if, if, uh, if you know, fate smiles upon them, in a round in the course of a tournament, it equates to, at the end of the year, a massive difference in performance and in the wins column. So it, it's, I understand why they have the insecurity of the pursuit. I understand why they have the hopefulness of the pursuit. It's just sometimes you're searching for something that's so elusive that you don't even realize that you already had it before you began the pursuit. But the pressure is there for them to constantly search for something else. And frankly, it permeates every level of the tour to some degree, not quite to the same dramatic degree that we just laid out. But if you look at a particular style, whether it's a putting, a grip style, or putter length, or, or, or stroke, whatever it is, and I'm just talking about putting, it could be with chipping, it could be any other aspect of the game. And if a player starts to have success with it, you'll notice other players on the range start to look over and go, hmm, okay, that's something that's working over there. I might give it a try, too, but that's been going on forever. Matt, just a couple more before we let you go. Um, Speaking of the mental side of the game, in your book you have a quote from Sergio Garcia about how much he loves the Ryder Cup. And he has been, you know, a good Ryder Cup player. Not a great one, but a good Ryder Cup player. He's three and six in singles matches, but in four ball and the foursome matches, you know, his pairings are tough to beat. He's 16-4-4 four four when paired with somebody. Is that another example of how powerful the mental side of the game is? Sergio is great when he's got someone there with him and to feed off of, but on his own, it's a little tougher for him. Yeah, I'd, I wouldn't phrase it that he's feeding off them necessarily. Rather, he's making sure that he doesn't let them down. There is, And, and it's, it's the same thing that we see exercising military mentality all the time they'll flat out tell you you may be standing alongside of someone that you cannot stand but if that person goes up that staircase or they storm through that doorway you're going to be right there on them you you're going to have their back and you know that they have yours and what Sergio has in that setting is very common to the Spanish golfers that preceded him Seve, Ali, all the rest they were the exact same way that in that setting, they are not going to let their partner down, and so he performs with it. I believe when he's set on the stage at the highest level, again, it's, it's, this, it's this neuron clicking in their brain, the nerves that, that are trying to connect. And when he's out there by himself, scar tissue and demons start to creep in, and it has affected him in the past. And every time we see Sergio get close, that creeps back up again right at the, at the moment when he does not need it to, and it's affected him. I know that he's playing better. I'm glad that he's playing better. I'm glad that he's putting better. But I have a feeling that if Sergio is destined to win a major championship, it's going to be a come-from-behind win in a major championship and not leading from out in front of the pack. Matt, I, you know, I've said many times on this show that Augusta National is my favorite place on the planet. My experiences have all been on the patron side of the ropes. What are some of your favorite stories from being on the ground? Augusta National, what, what I think makes Augusta National so special is first and foremost that it takes place in April every spring. And even now, here we are in early November, and we're talking about the Masters in Augusta National. It does that. It gets people so fired up and so excited that by the time that it comes, I remember someone calling my show, Chris, a guy ends up getting a whole bunch of flat screen 
3D TVs and he puts them in a massive tent and he has this huge barbecue. It's like in Texas, this fellow is. It's as if he has a huge tailgate built around the Masters. When you think about the level of excitement that's built there, and it's because it's our first major of the year, that in and of itself makes it so very special. And then when you're there, through the whispering of the winds through the pines, you can hear the echoes of Masters past, whether we're talking about, you know, Bobby Jones when he started the whole thing or whether we're talking about, you know, Gene Sarazen's Forwood and his Albatross or whether we're moving forward to, you know, Sneed and and Hogan going at it in 54 in a playoff that Sneed won and it was one of his highest achievements of his life because he was able to edge Ben Hogan in that setting, or you get to Arnold Palmer's multiple wins, very much to the chagrin and sadness of Ken Venturi through the first couple, and then Jack Nicklaus through his reign. It's just th- those stories seem somehow to be intertwined with the presence, presence when you're on the grounds of Augusta National. And for all of those reasons and all of that emotion, I think that is why the Masters is held so close to the heart of anyone that knows and loves the game. Yeah, that's fantastic. Matt, I, I want to end our time together this morning by quoting you. If we are all destined to miss our share of three-foot putts of life, then can we at least seek to increase our odds of success through preparation and a conviction that not only are we capable of success, but we deserve it. I agree that we all need positive reinforcement, and sometimes we have to kind of give it to ourselves. I want to thank you for being you know, in a positive way, for us to start out our mornings every day on your Fairways of Life show. I want to thank you for the books that you've written that all make us feel ultimately uplifted because I think that's important in life. No matter what the situations, the stripes that we have to deal with or feedback that we have to get or things that we have to deal with in our day-to-day lives, ultimately we all need to be uplifted. And you do a a wonderful job of doing that through your show and through your books. And I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your morning to be here with me. Always a pleasure, Chris. Have a great one. All right, take care, Matt. Matt Adams, what a great, great person Matt Adams is. You know, his shows are absolutely outstanding, and I can't recommend his books enough. Fairways of Life, Golf Wisdom of the Legends. It's a wonderful read. So many great, you know, uh, quotes throughout the book, so many great stories throughout the book. If you haven't gotten it yet, you need to go. You can find it on Matt's site as well as on Amazon.com. Really a wonderful read. All right, before we close up shop, speaking of wonderful reads, I want to let you know about a, a book that's out there, a wonderful new book. It's called A Golden 18, written by Roger Schiffman, and the photography is by a friend of ours and one of the great photographers anywhere on the planet, Jim Mandeville. Jim, as I'm sure you know, is the director of photography at the Nicholas Companies. The book showcases some of Mr. Nicholas's greatest course designs. The stories about the courses are great. The photography is simply outstanding. In fact, those, uh, the photographs in the book are so good, you're going to want to get a second copy of the book. So you can take some of those pictures out and frame them. Uh, to get your copy, go to nicholas.com and hover over products and partners and then click on books and videos. If you love golf and simply stunning photography, you're going to love this book. All right, everybody, it's time for me to put a bow on this one. My sincere thanks once again to Matt Adams for being such a great guest and being a part of the show with me this morning. I uh, can't thank him enough for being here, and I thank you for tuning in. You know we appreciate you the most. 
Please also check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host Bob Lazari, our announcer Joe Lajanusa. That show airs live every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find it on Blog Talk Radio. It's also rebroadcast Friday nights from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time on Boost Radio, as well as on the Armed Forces Radio Network. Uh, We're joined every week by legends from around the NFL and the CFL. Plus, also check out both shows on Facebook. That's important to us, too. Give us a like, ThursdayNightTailgate.com, next on the T. You can find us online, this show, nextonthetea.net, and ThursdayNightTailgate.com. Plus, you can stream or download any of our archived episodes for free and keep up to date with who our future guests are on both sites. I thank you again for choosing to listen to this show and to be up with me this morning. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. And participate in Wendy's for a limited time. Meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii.